getting rid of the social security number as a universal identifier? And is the government justified for blaming Kaspersky Labs for the NSA hack? These stories and more coming up in the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro. I'm going to date myself. When in the 1960s, the Social Security Administration, then part of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, issued my Social Security card, the bottom of the card stated, for Social Security purposes, not for identification. Oh, how times have changed. Here's cyber risk expert Richard Parry. The social security number is an incredibly valuable thing if you use it for what it is, and that's an account number. It does nothing more than tell you what products and services of the federal government you have in your portfolio. To use it for identity was asinine. The slippery slope toward using the social security number as more than a number representing an individual's social security account began in the early 1970s. That's when the Social Security Administration removed from the card the warning that the number should not be used for identification. Congress helped facilitate the social security number as a universal identifier in 1970 when it passed a law to require banks to obtain all customers' social security numbers. That was the first of a slew of laws enacted over the next two decades, expanding the use of the social security number as a universal identifier. But since the beginning of this century, the government began implementing new rules to curtail the use of social security numbers. Despite those minimal limits, the social security number remains the key way in the United States, not only for governments, but other organizations, including many businesses, to identify individuals. And enabled by their widespread use as an identifier, the theft of social security numbers is a big contributor to fraud. The revelation that the breach of computers at the Consumer Credit Reporting Agency Equifax exposed the social security numbers of more than 145 million Americans resurrected talk of finding an alternative to social security numbers as the universal identifier of individuals. Even the CEO of Equifax at the time of the breach, the newly retired Richard Smith, told a House hearing last week that the government and business should begin a dialogue on replacing the social security number as the touchstone for identity verification in the United States. He says it's time to have identity verification procedures that match the technology age in which we live. I think it's time as a country to think beyond that. What is a better way to identify consumers in our country in a very secure way? I think that way is something different than an SSN, a date of birth, and a name. Even before the Equifax breach, Congress held a hearing in May on Social Security numbers and identity theft. Testifying at that hearing was Gregory Wilshison. He's the Information Security Issues Director at the Government Accountability Office. And speaking about their use in the federal government, Wilshison outlined the challenges in replacing the Social Security number as a common identifier of individuals. Agency officials noted that Social Security numbers cannot be completely eliminated from federal IT systems and records, in part because no other identifier offers the same degree of universal awareness and applicability. The predicament over the universality of the Social Security number has captured the attention of the Trump White House. I feel very strongly that the Social Security numbers outlived its usefulness. It's a flawed system. That's White House Cybersecurity Coordinator and Special Assistant to the President, Rob Joyce. He spoke last week at a cybersecurity conference in Washington, sponsored by The Washington Post. Every time we use the Social Security number, you put it at risk. 
by interacting with it. You've given a key piece of information out publicly, maybe to a private company, maybe to an individual. That is you know, the identifier that connects you to all sorts of credit and digital information online. There are technologies we can look at advancing, and I think our call is let's look at what would be a better system. Certainly the idea that we could use a public and private key, something that I can use publicly but not put the information at risk, something that can be revoked if it's known to be compromised. Joyce says the nation needs to find a way to use modern cryptographic identifiers to help drive down risk, and he says that's something he's working on at the White House. At the policy coordination level in a group I run, we've called for the departments and agencies to bring forward their ideas and let's start talking about the social security number and the the vulnerabilities in the cyber world. But are new technologies the only way to get rid of the social security number as a universal identifier? Perhaps organizations in and out of government could abandon the use of a universal identifier, period, whether or not it's a social security number. Instead, as the privacy group Electronic Privacy Information Center, or EPIC, advocates, organizations should adopt context-dependent identifiers, bank account numbers, library card numbers, a university student ID, and so on. Context-dependent identifiers would enable authentication without the risk of the universal identification system. If one number gets compromised, EPIC says, all the numbers are not spoiled and identity thieves cannot access all individual accounts. Individual accounts would be compartmentalized, and that would enhance their security. But doing away with universal identifiers isn't something that's likely to come soon, regardless of the number of breaches that expose social security numbers. When we return after this brief message, we'll take a look at whether Kaspersky Lab was behind the hack of an NSA contractor's computer containing top secrets. There has been no evidence that has been released publicly by the U.S. government or the FBI to substantiate that allegation. This is the ISMG Security Report. ISMG's Fraud and Breach Prevention Summit will take place October 17th and 18th in London. Keynote address will be provided by Phil Reitinger, CEO of the Global Cyber Alliance, followed by other information security leaders discussing hot topics like ransomware, GDPR, insider threat detection, and more. Visit events.ismg.io and register today. Welcome back. A report surfaced last week that hackers working for the Kremlin breached a home computer of a national security agency contractor that ran antivirus software from Russian-owned Kaspersky Lab. The 2015 hack appears damaging, with the Wall Street Journal reporting that hackers stole top NSA secrets, revealing how the U.S. penetrates adversaries' networks and defends against cyber attacks. The fact that Kaspersky antivirus software was said to have been installed on the contractor's home computer seems to bolster the move by the Trump administration to ban use of Kaspersky Labs software on government computers. White House Cybersecurity Coordinator Rob Joyce spoke about the Kaspersky ban at a cybersecurity conference sponsored by the Washington Post days before the journal broke the story about the breach, and we can assume he knew about it. Asked if the Russians ever siphoned off sensitive data using Kaspersky software, Joyce responded, I'm not going to address our intelligence sources and methods. But he provided the government's rationale to banning Kaspersky wares from government computers. If you think about what an antivirus is, it is something that runs at the very lowest level of the operating system beneath all of the other software and checks 
It's designed to scan every file on your computer. It scans those files looking for things based on a series of commands that come from the company. That company is a Russian company. We have plenty of examples of Russian companies being compelled and cooperating with Russian intelligence. And there's even a law requiring participation in intelligence activities by those uh, communications and computer companies in Russia. Mm -hmm. So as that data comes off your machine and goes back to Russia, it's vulnerable and available. We look at that and uh, made a risk decision that we can't tolerate these on government networks. And that's the basis for it. People keep asking for the intelligence justification. There's no reason we should be compelled to show the intelligence. That in and of itself is a very compelling case. Just on those merits, we would be making poor decisions if we put that on sensitive U.S. government networks. My ISMG colleague, Data Breach Today Executive Editor Matthew Schwartz, has been analyzing the breach, and I asked Matt if he's seen any evidence that definitively shows that Kaspersky Labs was involved with Russian intelligence in this specific case. There has been no evidence that has been released publicly by the U.S. government or the FBI to substantiate that allegation. The logical leap that's being made here is that somehow malware collected by Kaspersky Labs consumer antivirus software ended up in the hands of Russian intelligence. Now, there's a lot we don't know here. Is it possible that Russian intelligence was listening in on the pipeline that would communicate between an endpoint running this antivirus software and the vendor's servers? So something gets flagged, it looks suspicious, a copy gets sent back to the vendor. This is normal antivirus behavior. This protects us all. It's a form of herd immunity. Something shows up and the security researchers, the malware researchers study it. And if it's new, if it's something not good, they create a signature and push the signature out to millions of users. This is just how these things work. What we don't know is, was someone listening in on that pipeline? I've reached out now to 15 antivirus vendors, including Kaspersky Lab, and asked them, how do you secure this process? If you send malware samples back, which they all do, is this encrypted? Is there a chance that someone could be listening in? Because I think that's one potential explanation for how Russian intelligence may have gotten their hands on it. We don't know. Did someone inside Kaspersky Lab tip off the Russian government? It could be seen that it's the home team. Is there a Russian government mole? Is there someone who feels warmly towards the Russian government and wanted to share this with them? That's one possibility. Another possibility, security researchers got their hands on this stuff. They often share it. They wouldn't necessarily share every part of the malware, but they might share aspects of it. And that would typically occur across borders. Kaspersky Lab has worked with firms such as F-Secure, for example, in Finland, and firms in the United States, such as Semantic, to chase scary APT nation state malware down in the past. So it's possible this stuff started circulating. What's unclear is how Russian intelligence got a copy of this. It's possible they hacked this person's home PC completely independently and Kaspersky Lab is just being blamed. No evidence has been released to substantiate any of the allegations. Everything is a big question mark where it comes to how the Russian intelligence establishment got their hands on this stuff. To learn more about this breach, Go to databreachtoday.com and read Matt's story titled 10 Reactions, Allegations Against Kaspersky Lab. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Years can pass before an organization learns that it's been breached. ISMG Security and Technology Editor Jeremy Kirk tells us of one such case. 
Commenting platform Discuss is resetting passwords after a database breach from 2012. It's one of several breaches in which the leaked data has surfaced, and more in the pipeline. Discuss is a commenting platform that lets websites build a database of users and track engagement. The company says its software is used by millions of publishers. The attackers obtain a snapshot of a database circa 2012. 12 with information on 17.5 million users going back to 2007. The breach exposed email addresses, salted password hashes, usernames, sign-up dates, and the last time they logged in. The discussed passwords were hashed using the SHA-1 algorithm, which is considered to be too weak to be used these days. Hashing is the process by which a plain text password is processed by an algorithm to generate a cryptographic representation that's safer for service providers to store. Discussed passwords also had SALT, which is an additional security measure that makes it more difficult to guess the plain text. Modern computing power allows attackers to calculate hashes and then check if hashes match the leaked one. There's a good chance that at least the weak passwords hashed with SHA-1 could be cracked or have already been cracked. Discuss was notified by Australian data breach expert Troy Hunt, who runs the Have I Been Pwned breach notification service. He says he was passed the data by a source. Just last week, Hunt added several other breaches to Have I Been Pwned, including Reverb Nation, Kickstarter, and Bitly. All of the companies disclosed the breaches in the first half of 2014, and all of those were passed to him by the same source. The latest unearthing of actual data from known breaches harks of last year. That's when data stolen from major companies including Yahoo, LinkedIn, MySpace, and Twitter started circulating in the cybercriminal underground years after the actual breaches occurred. The companies that Hunt has the data for are being notified now. So while last year was notable for the number of breaches disclosed by big companies, this year is still far from over. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro. Catch you next time.